Hello, everybody. I uh, hope your weeks are well and welcome back this week. Uh, we missed you, but we also very much appreciate your understanding um, in our taking a pause last week to address um, and, and shine light on a lot of the craziness of the world. So we really hope that you took our um, advice and, and kind of tried to read up or educate yourselves on um, some of the topics of racism and equality. Um, there's tons out there. I'm so glad that conversation is continuing. Um, and for that side of the Faded Fam, um, we're here for you. Uh, we are listening and we're open to continuing to learn. Um, we are back this week um, with an episode that I'm really excited about. It was kind of a bit more off the cuff. Uh, Chris and I decided to go back to just the two of us. So um, apologies for those who are excited about a special guest. We don't have one this week. And hopefully it's fulfilling enough for you anyways. Uh, I think some of the topics are, are really exciting. Um, the first thing we get into is uh, one of the pieces of the 12 steps. Um, so actually spans steps 10 and 11 and into 12. Uh, and that is a nightly inventory and a bit of a deep dive into that. The reason we wanted to go into this is not only did a lot of you ask about nightly inventory, um, but we really feel this is a tool that anybody in the entire world could use, regardless of if you're a drug addict, an alcoholic, um, or you just happen to be an everyday person dealing with whatever you might be dealing with, a bad day, anxiety, um, depression, whatever it is, we, we feel very strongly that this is something that can be used by all. So we will definitely post the questions associated with the nightly inventory on our social channels so that you can tune in, uh, maybe give it a try yourself. I mean, why not? Right. Um, especially now there's, a, there's a lot of heavy, so let's all reflect, let's all continue and let's all try it together. Um, so we get into that and then, uh, we, we move forward, uh, into some of your listener questions. Um, thank you everyone for engaging so much. This is so great. And it helps us to understand what you're getting out of these episodes, what you're missing from these episodes. And we are absolutely happy to address anything that comes up. So um, a lot of really fun stories from Chris on what he's been through, through some of the answers to these questions. Uh, so ex I'm excited for you guys to hear those. And then the final thing is, just wanted to wish Chris, my little brother, um, a happy 30th birthday. He has turned 30 since you will have heard his reference to that uh, in this and uh, couldn't be more proud of him, um, of our family, just for how we're tackling this. And uh, yeah, sit back. Uh, we're so happy to be back with you uh, and we will continue our cadence of weekly podcasts from here on out. Thank you all so much. <laughs> what is going on yeah how are you i'm good how are you good awesome. really busy and productive day so good awesome no complaints yeah happy cinco de mayo happy cinco de mayo taco tuesday all the above <laughs> i know it's all falling into place um, i know it is best day of the year best day of the year I am currently in my closet because I found the sound is better. I'm learning all these things. <laughs> I'm glad we're still recording and continuing this. It's been an awesome week. We, by the time people would have heard this, we would have released the podcast and it's been a blast to see the response. So thank you everybody who has stuck with us. And hopefully by now you're, you're used to us and our faces and our voices and all the things that go along with that. <laughs> yep. Are you... So are you in the closet, like with the lights off or what's going on? <laughs> no, lights are on. <laughs> that would be a little strange. No, I'm, I'm literally, the sound, what I'm learning, because again, I mentioned I'm not a production person, sound is much better in a confined space. And we have tall ceilings uh, where I live. And so it echoes. And therefore, to be in the closet is way better than to be out in the open. So I'm here. I'm literally singing, sitting among my clothes. For anybody that cares, <laughs> shoes. <laughs> and we're continuing the adventure. So, um, listen, today I think it's important. We've been trying to listen in on what people are interested in hearing more about. One of those things um, stems from 
uh, the conversation we had um, about the 12 steps um, and specifically about uh, taking a nightly inventory as part of which step, if you can remind me? Uh, the 11th step. 11th step. So uh, as I've learned more about the 11th, really the 12 steps in general and uh, the benefit of ensuring through recovery that we're following the 12 steps, it's not only something that seems to be um, applicable to addicts and alcoholics who are in recovery, but also potentially just all of us in the world. So would love today if we could do something a little different and just have you kind of talk us through what a nightly inventory looks like. I know you alluded to it before, but it seems to be something that everybody can potentially practice and uh, just kind of keeps yourself in check from, from what I'm gathering. Is that right? It is. I actually have a funny story about nightly inventories and everyone in the world being able to use them. So a lot of the program, after you, after you learn what your actual disease is and, and you see that you have that mental obsession and you have that physical allergy and that spiritual malady and you, you go on these sprees and have some consequences and emerge remorseful and make a firm resolution and all that stuff, you, you start to proceed with the solution. And you would think that um, the cycle uh, that you go through with that mind, body, and spirit is the center of the problem. And, and it, it is a problem. However, um, we learn when we get, get into this deal that um, selfishness and self-centeredness is actually the root of our troubles. And that kind of goes in line with that spiritual malady where you're irritable, restless, and discontent. So um, if selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problems, I need to somehow be rid of, of my selfishness and self-centeredness and, and have a solution that takes that away because realistically alcohol and drugs was my solution and, and is a lot of people's solution for a long time. And the problem is, is that it, it stops working and causes a lot of, of negative things to occur. So the program is, is very centered around like, taking the ego and taking the, the defects of character and turning them over to a higher power and getting to a place to where you turn from living a selfish lifestyle to a altruistic lifestyle. And that's through action, uh, prayer, meditation to whatever you believe in and helping other people. And it, it kind of forces you to be selfless. And what you find is that you start having this, this spiritual experience, which is really just a psychic change. Um, and, and a lot of people overcomplicate it, but it, it simply is just a psychic change where you turn from thinking about me, myself, to thinking about the world around me and how I can, I can try to do my best to, to help the world around me. So Seems like something that um, everybody could relate to, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so step 11 is steps 10, 11, and 12. 10 is like a daily inventory like you go throughout your day and whenever fear selfishness dishonesty uh, and resentment pop up those four defects of character uh, you're supposed to like pray about it tell someone about it uh, make an amends if you've caused any harm because of it and then and then turn your thoughts to someone you can help that's like what you do throughout the day in step 10 and step 11 is you go back uh, at the end of the night, you go back and you review your day and it's basically what you missed in step 10. Right. And, um, so just a quick, funny story. I was in, uh, I was working for, um, like a big tech company and I went into this, this, like, it was a pretty big meeting with some executives and, and, um, directors and high level managers. And, and we went in there and this one guy was saying like, you know, I want to talk about, how we deal with stress. And I want to just like take a second to talk like, like a human and talk about what you do to cope with stress. And, and, you know, personally I go for walks and, and I, I work on my diet and this and that. And he was like, let's go around the room and do that. And a lot of people, some people didn't know how to answer it. And then some people did. And they said, well, I work out, I play sports, I do this. And then it got to me. And of course I'm like the hippie, like I'm not, I'm not the, the type of person that's, on a spiritual hilltop telling everybody they need to go, you know, change their ways or they're, they're not going to be okay. But I, I kind of laughed and I was like, well, 
I'm going to come at this one from left field, but um, I do something that's called a nightly inventory every night. And typically when I do it, um, I find that my days are, are, I feel much more internally powerful. Like I, I have energy, I have clarity, I have intuition and it, it's absolutely the truth. So I ended up sending the nightly inventory format out to like, 30 managers and directors and, and a couple of them did it and responded and said that it was changing their life very quickly. Really? So it's, it's, it's amazing. So that's awesome. Um, just a cool little backstory. Anybody can do this. And, and if you struggle with like anxiety or you struggle with like clarity, um, it's not a bad practice to, to do. Um, it does take discipline. So I'm literally going to read what a nightly inventory is. It, it, literally says when we retire at night we constructively review our day and what I like to do is I'm in a group text message with like this group of four guys and we've been doing it for years and every night we text each other our nightly inventories to hold each other accountable so whether you're in you know a a, a 12-step program or not you know if you want to do this with somebody to hold each other accountable it, it it helps so um, it says, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves, which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving towards all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking about ourselves most of the time, or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness, God of your understanding, whatever you believe in, uh, and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So essentially, it's taking a, a checklist inventory of where we basically fell short throughout the day. And I'll put something as simple as I, I walked into the restaurant and didn't hold the door open for somebody who was 10 feet behind me because I didn't think it was necessary, you know? Yeah. Um, so the, the reason for all of this, I know I'm kind of talking a lot, but the reason for all of this is it's to kind of clear that passageway of defects out of your mind and spirit. And, and it's supposed to uh, enable you to be free from, from that selfish way of thinking and living and it's doing it through action as opposed to just trying to recognize you're selfish and then be morbid about it. So, right. right. Really interesting. And I, like, for example, I had a day yesterday, um, just, you know, not, not my favorite day. Things, things were going well. And I was holding so much resentment um, for so many reasons, but it seems like I could have applied a nightly inventory against that just to kind of keep myself in check. It's, it's almost like it acknowledges it as part of just what you're going through in the moment. It's part of your day. It's part of you and you've got to acknowledge it and then kind of allow it to be released. Correct. <laughs> That's exactly what it is and, and not beating yourself up about it. But like the biggest part of, of this whole thing and in, in, in life in general, what I've learned through all of this is that, like regardless of being a drug addict or alcoholic or not, like destroying the ego is, is one of the most powerful and, and um, best things that somebody can do for themselves because the only thing that the ego is going to do is bring you down and, and hurt you in the long run. Right, right, for sure. And with resentment, uh, normally if I'm resentful at somebody, it's because there's some insecurity in there about myself or I see someone, something in that person that I don't like about myself or, you know, I get mad at work because, you know, they don't appreciate me enough. But then when I put it on paper and I look at it, it's like, well, what am I really doing at work? Am I watching videos for three hours a day or am I literally working the entire time I'm there? You know, so right. um, right. it's it's really, really powerful. And it seems like the the only difference from what I'm gathering and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only difference between like me and you um, would be that your solution to your selfishness and your ego would have been to drink and use. And mine might've been to just go sulk in the corner or something like I just didn't have that, that actual like physical portion. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, really it's, it's, 
kind of more like my solution to my, my spiritual malady and my solution to my irritable restlessness and discontent uh, feelings. The solution to that was drugs and alcohol for a long time. And what's, what's causing that irritability and restlessness is the selfish thoughts that constantly go on in my, in my brain. And those things build up so much through time that, whenever you get involved in this whole process, it's, it's, it's to clear all that stuff out through time. And then the whole purpose of the 10th step and 11th step and and 12th step of helping other people is to, to keep that passageway clear and to be rid of those defects of character and have a clear slate and conscience on a daily basis. Okay. That makes sense. And what is the, tell me the importance of sharing the nightly inventory with other people. Like it, it is, is just acknowledging it on your own, even an option, or is it critical and just super important for you to be able to share that with others as part of it? No, you do not have to share it with other people. There's, there's nothing that states that you, you need to share it and, and, and do it as like a confession uh, we find it to be powerful because the more um, you present out loud to somebody that you trust, the more the ego will be shattered and and grinded down to like dust. Um, I just like doing it with a group because, for instance, I haven't done it in a couple of weeks, you know, which is yeah. not good because I have to do it. My life depends on it. That is That is literally what my life depends on is doing those things. Um, and I have an accountability group that when they're sending it every single night and I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, I'm too tired. I don't want to do this. In the back of my mind, I'm like, I know I'm supposed to be doing this right now, yeah. you know? And I had, I had a moment this morning when I woke up where I was like, I, I need to do this every single night. And you kind of go through, you know, little flows of doing it, not doing it. And I find that my life is more clear and better when I'm doing it. Yeah. I love the accountability thing too, because it, it'll keep you on your toes. Um, and yeah. then what is it? It's just those couple of questions and you really just casually text those. Um, just everybody kind of understands that it's, you know, a certain time of night or whenever you're ready in the evening that that that's when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Like at night before people go to bed is pretty much when they do it. A lot of people will write it down with pen and paper because uh, that's really the most powerful way to do it. When you see your, 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 pencil or pen writing down these answers um it's really difficult to avoid the the i guess clearness of it or clarity of it and it's it's also important that to to talk about the the nightly inventory is part of the 11th step yep but the other the other part of it is actually um like prayer and meditation and whenever you talk about prayer and meditation people immediately think about religion and my personal beliefs on religion is, is, you know, I went to a Catholic high school and I believe that all that stuff is good. I, I truly believe in every religion. I don't, I don't necessarily um, think that I am uh, a believer in, in all of them. I just, I just believe that if you can take good principles from um, a way that somebody is, is living their life through a religion, then good for you, you know? And I find that my, my belief in God or, you know, the spirituality of the world is through um, experiences and through meditation and through praying to what I believe it is. And, and I can't put a face on it. It's difficult for me. So um, the meditation part of it, it, it talks about on awakening, like when you wake up, it says on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day before we begin. We ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest or self-seeking motives. And then under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with, with assurance for after all God gave his brains to use our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of gives you some, some clear directions to center yourself, uh, make yourself aware through your breath or through, um, silence or whatever you want to do. And then what happens if I wake up and I create a space for myself to be clear headed before I go through throughout my day and I ask for some direction from God or the universe or whatever it is, 
um, that tent step that I'm supposed to look out for during the day and that nightly inventory that I do at night, it's much easier for those things to come into my consciousness because I'm aware I'm asking for a direction and I'm not living in my own selfish brain. Right. Right. Really interesting. And I, the meditation thing obviously has become so much more uh, popular, not just, just, not just through this, but just in, in society as well. And I think people find quite a bit come out of, comes out of meditation as well, or prayer. If you're, if you're more religious and prayer is um, what you turn to as well, just you're right. Having, having that religion, that spirituality to turn to um, really interesting. Yeah. And then you yeah, said, absolutely. Like, you said that you haven't done yours for, for, you know, a couple weeks and you're, um, you're used to these things, but what happens, you know, especially with newly recovered folks, I mean, what happens when you don't do this and practice the right way, um, through the 11th step? Um, I have a, I have a pretty clear answer for that. So for me, there is no reason why I haven't done it over the past couple of weeks other than pure laziness. Yep. And shame on me for not doing it because that just means that I'm getting to a place where I feel like, quote unquote, I've got this, yeah. you know, and I don't, I don't feel that way right this very moment. But the reason why I would stop doing it or people stop doing it is because um, it's easy to get to a place to where you're like, if I miss a nightly inventory tonight, I'm going to be fine. Right. And unfortunately what happens is, so I have an example. So when I, when I, first got sober the first like nine months of, of my uh recovery in sobriety was in a place called Kerrville Texas mm -hmm. and I had a guy helping me and, and mentoring me and um I would call him and I would say I was already through the step work and and I was helping other people and stuff and you know I asked him I said hey I'm I'm not really quite like clear on what I'm supposed to do with this new job I'm looking at I don't really know if if I want to be in Kerrville anymore. Uh, I miss this. I miss that. And I start to kind of reach externally for things to make me feel better. And I would say like, you know, I, I, I need some of your help. And he would say, let me ask you a question. Are you helping people? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, you're doing that right. Are you involved with other people that are, are, are also, you know, sober and, and in a fellowship of like uh, recovered people? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, what about your nightly inventories? When was the last time you did a nightly inventory? And I said, well, it's been like a week and a half or two weeks since I've done it. And he said, all right, do your nightly inventory for the next five nights. Uh, if you really need me, call me, but don't call me and tell me how you're feeling until you're done doing that. Hmm. And this happened probably 10 times with him. Hmm. And I called him and said, hey, I don't know what it is about doing these inventories, but for some reason, when I do them, my life is better. Hmm. And he was like, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't stop doing it then. Right. <laughs> and the reason why is because when all these like fears and um, resentments, and if I'm being dishonest and all of these things on a daily basis that add up that I'm not becoming aware of and releasing, like it'll start to make me confused about life and it'll start to make me not see things very clearly and it, it it makes the path of life much more narrow and um whenever you're clearing that space out it leaves you room to allow like your intuition to kick in and your gut to kick in which i believe is god like your intuition and, and gut and like guidance from something stronger than you um you're creating an atmosphere for that stuff to actually work because my mind isn't blocking all of those things off um, from the clarity and from the guidance. Yeah. It's interesting to, I mean, what a concept too, for, you know, at the simplest form of all this, and I'm speaking more so from my perspective, cause I know me, um, is just what a thought to have everybody just kind of stop, uh, before they go to bed and, and when they wake up in the morning to just reflect on what's around them and what's going on and what you're going through and acknowledging it because, there really is so much clutter and, and confusion and uncertainty. And especially right now, um, there, there's so much around us that it's, if you don't do something like that in whatever form, you know, you, you find it most spirituality wise. And then for you in this 11th step, as it guides you, 
um, I could see that it brings a ton of clarity because you're, you're stopping for a minute. You're taking that pause to like really acknowledge everything around you. Yeah. And think about it. If every single person in the world at night sat down and took a look at where they were selfish, dishonest, afraid, resentful, thinking about themselves, were they packing things into the stream of life? Like what, what they can do better. If mm. everyone in the world did that every night, like think about how peaceful the world would be. It would because be crazy. We, we, yeah, we take away all the selfishness that's involved in the world that we all naturally have as, as people that have faults because we're human beings. And, and we learn how to take accountability for that and grow from it. And it doesn't make me better than, than the person next to me or, or, or the person that I see at the store just because I'm doing that at night. But it, it helps me have more clarity and it definitely helps keep me accountable to when I am being selfish and dishonest and resentful and, and nasty. Um, and it's, 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 I'm grateful because like, I never would have done this stuff if I didn't have to get sober. If someone said, Hey, do a nightly inventory, it'll make your life better. I, I don't think I would do it unless I, unless I absolutely had to do it to, to keep me, sane and, and sober. <laughs> like I yeah. just wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Is, um, are you pretty much in the norm of like kind of your, when you were talking about your first nine months, um, or just kind of like coming, coming into the recovery world where you were a bit skeptical on doing them. And then you kind of learned, is that, is that a pretty standard for people that are coming into recovery or do people tend to adopt it pretty quickly? I think that if someone comes in and they're actually willing to do whatever they're told to, to get well, they're going to do it. And I think that everyone will slack off and not do it from time to time. But if someone's sitting there telling you, this is all you have to do to stay sane around drugs and alcohol and stay well, like if you've, if you've been, if you've been beat up badly enough and you've had a true like first step experience around the fact that like, you no longer have the choice whether you pick it up or not. And like that cycle won't stop unless like you have some type of solution. It, it, you're typically going to like, when someone says like, I need you to jump, you say how high, yeah. you know? And, and, and if you're not really willing to do that, it's fine. And, and we find a lot of people who, who do get, get better or do come into the program trying to get better. Like if they balk at something and say, know if I'm willing to do that or I'm just too lazy to do that like then you can kind of see where where people are at with with their desperation and willingness to to get better yeah well and thank you for your honesty in you not being perfect through this either because I think that's really helpful for people listening where you know thinking of you doing this every single night and every single morning and while that sometimes is a trend right I it's it's so helpful to also hear that you're not always perfect with it um, and that you're, you're still doing all right um, and that you don't have to be exact um, all the time um, as much as you can be is good, but uh, thanks for the transparency there too. Yeah. I have, I have a, a buddy who I'm in that group, that text group with who his name is Daniel. He would love to hear this because he, he was uh, presenting something the other night to a bunch of people and, and talking about it and, he was like, yeah, I'm in a nightly inventory group text with a bunch of guys. And he was like, you know, Chris and this other person, like they haven't done it in weeks or whatever. And we were like, that is true. And it's funny because he legitimately does it 365 nights a year. Really? Yeah. Daniel, I'm, I'm what a kidding. hero. <laughs> That's I know he is a, he is a hero. And <laughs> another guy that I, you know, mentor or whatever you want to call it, um, I helped him get sober and, and stuff. And he's, he's an incredible person. His name's Ken. He, uh, he texts me his nightlies every night and, and I text him mine. And he, for the past, I think year and a half that he's been sober has not missed a single nightly inventory, Amazing. like not one single time as he missed it. And he's one of the happiest, most successful guys I've ever met. I love it. I love, I love learning all of these tools too, and your cycle of addiction and all these things that really are just such great tools for moving forward. Um, and, and we can, you know, 
me as a, as you know, somebody that hasn't struggled, I'm, I'm getting a ton out of just even thinking through these as well. So the, um, the resources they provide just even in guidance or in, in, in starting to think that way, uh, has been awesome to learn. Uh, so thanks for taking us through that. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. It's, it's pretty cool that anybody can use this for their life. And, and it's, it's a solution that can solve like all of your problems, not just your drug and alcohol problem. Right. That's awesome. A couple questions in the night and the morning. That's great. Um, is it weird? I'm going to say something cheesy right now, but I got so excited the other day. Um, and we briefly talked about it, but, um, with, with Jason's, um, interview that we talked about, um, and his playing career and just like his crazy story and, um, the kind of shadow um that was on the world of athletes and celebrities and all this stuff seeing eminem post about his 12-year recovery anniversary like made me so giddy and happy just because it's like i I don't feel like we see a ton of that and i it just made me so happy it's right out there he said i'm not afraid etc like like just simple, like this is something I've been through. I, I love that. I, I just want to get your reaction to that. Cause I just, we need more of that. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's important for people who have a spotlight on them to not be ashamed of it. And I think the world now is, is really turning for, um, I spoke with somebody last night who reached out to me late last night and said that they had a family member who was dealing with like, uh, uh some mental illness and, uh, they found that when they watched a couple of the videos on, on the pod or on the um, Facebook page and, and listened to the podcast, they found it admirable that we're speaking op- openly about it. And he was like, I've shied away from talking openly about it when, when people are having conversations about mental illness or addiction. And he was like, I don't want to do that anymore. And I said, well, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's, it's your story and you should be proud of it. You know, right. the fact that you can relate to people and, you know, we were also taught, I was, I was, <laughs> I was talking earlier and like, it's just amazing how some people think that like, they have to keep this stuff a secret because why would you keep something a secret that, that like you struggled with and you're working on getting better at it? Right. You know, like anybody that wants to get better in their life, whether it's through addiction or mental illness or anything like you should feel a sense of pride about that and if you struggle along the way and have issues along the way it doesn't make you a bad person I mean none of us are bad people trying to become better people we're we're sick people trying to get well and I think that everybody in the world has a level of selfishness in their mind to them and and if you're if you're working on getting rid of that selfishness I mean good good for you you know like be proud of of you know, if you used to be somewhat of a selfish person that lived in a lot of resentment or fear and, and got out from under it, like good for you for being open about it. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I just love seeing when people are using part of their platform, at least to just to just be open about things now, regardless of what it is. It's just so helpful to to showcase the the true human side of a lot of people. Um, so that was one example that I just I, it just made me smile. Um, I think it's just yeah. awesome. Um, so, Hey, do you have time for a couple of questions that people sent in? Yes. Amazing. Let's get into it. I know that a lot of people have things stirring around in their minds and a lot of them, hopefully by the time we get to this have been answered or at least touched upon, um, in other episodes. But, um, the one that is really interesting, um, and I don't know that I know the answer to this is just about the disease itself is, is addiction at, from what you know and what you've learned is this disease something that is a part of your makeup hereditary etc or is it something that develops over time or is it both or what what uh knowledge if anything can you give toward that question i will not speak as a as a doctor or psychiatrist because i'm not qualified to but um i will speak from personal experience and if you listen to jason's story um, he even talked about how he developed it through time yep. and, and became a alcoholic and, and drug addict through time. Um, there is something that, that I can speak on because I, I took a class on and learned that there's these, these chemicals in your brain called THIQs. And 
they did a bunch of tests on rats and, and monkeys and essentially like it's the same chemical that goes off when I take a sip of alcohol as if I do a shot of heroin mm -hmm. and those get released in my brain as a, as a drug addict and alcoholic, um, no matter what substance I take, if it is a drug or, or drink. And there are people that develop it through time because, you know, I personally have, um, the disease of addiction and alcoholism in my genes my uh, grandfather um, struggled with it and like other people in my in my family past him I, I guarantee struggled with it and it's something that I know for a fact I have I have the gene yep. um, most people that I talk to when they're trying to get well will say my um, my mother is an alcoholic or drug addict or my my grandmother or grandfather was an alcoholic or drug addict and like, I think it's a case by case basis, but a lot of studies without me going too far into trying to talk like a psych psychiatrist or a, mm -hmm. a doctor, um, a lot of studies are showing that it is an absolutely a genetic disease. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and thanks for the clarification. We are not doctors and we are not trying to be doctors on this, but um, just bringing the education and knowledge that we know. So that's super helpful. And I know that that's a question that'll continue to come up because it is, um, you know, I, I think everyone kind of sees it from, from different points, but that's super helpful. Thank you. Um, and then mm -hmm on the same note, like your story, and we've heard actually through um, John's story, um, and I believe through Bubba's and, and Jason's, but it seems to be that the age that things start happening, meaning you start to experiment with alcohol and, um, and weed and pills, and like it kind of develops, is pretty young, like between, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 ish. Is that, do you find that that seems to be, and I'm not trying to put an age on when addiction starts by any means. So please not trying to misrepresent that, but does it seem to be around that same time when you're kind of just, I guess, growing into your body and trying new things that most people are kind of starting? I mean, yeah, from like, there's a high percentage of people that based off of the experience I've had doing all of this, that, that when I meet them and they, they talk about how they've had problems with substance abuse or alcohol abuse, they tried it at an early age, whether it was, you know, just past 10 years old or, or 17 or 18 years old, like whatever it is. I mean, personally, I find that, that, alcoholics and drug addicts can be some pretty curious people whenever they find something that might change the way they feel yep. because drug addicts and alcoholics drink and use, use drugs for the effect produced. That is why they do it. They, they don't do it for, for many other reasons. Right. And I think that when you have that, that physical allergy to it and that mental obsession to it, um, after you've done it a couple of times, like typically you find what you like and you, you want more of that. And, you know, whenever you're in your teens, like that's typically when you experiment with things because you feel like you're invisible as, as a young person. And, yeah. um, I turned 30 this month, which is super weird. And, right. you know, I, I'm finding that I'm more cautious about things that I do, even if it's like playing sports, you know, or, or, yeah. Um, the thought of getting hurt scares me a whole lot more than when I was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, I didn't care about anything, you know, right. because I thought I was invisible. And um, I think a good answer to that question is I'm sure the majority of people that start drinking and using drugs, is, it's in their teens. But it's absolutely not the case for 100% of people. There's right. no way. Right, for sure. I can't believe you're going to be 30. I literally just had a flashback of teaching you how to ride a bike without training wheels. <laughs> hey, I started doing that when I was young. Yeah, you did. Like three. It was crazy. You are an early adapter um, or adopter. Um, so on that note, um, tell us about, I would, I know I've asked you this before, but when you, when you, you're into recovery and you are, um, kind of out of the world of um, treatment facilities and recovery and kind of the, the bubble, if you will, um, that you are in for a little bit. What's it like coming out of that specifically around friends and family and, and being back in like a normal world, um, if you will, for lack of a better term, um, and having family and friends like 
drinking around you and, um, you know, for, for those who use using around you. And, and like, I just, I think there is a bit of a stigma that when an addict or alcoholic comes home, it's like they cringe at the fact that someone has a glass of wine. Like what is, what is the reality of that? I mean, do you have, is it a cycle where you, it's uncomfortable and then it's fine or do you really not care just based on how you've recovered? That's a very, very good question. That's one of the best questions I've, I've heard. And I like that question because it's really important to listen very closely to this. Um, it is not fair for me to go home and tell my family, in my opinion, after I've gotten through this work and gotten to a place of, of sanity around drugs and alcohol to say, I don't want you guys drinking around me. Um, that is my personal opinion, and someone else could definitely have a different one. The reason why I say that is because the whole purpose of, of this solution and the whole purpose of getting better and well is not so I can struggle for the rest of my life to stay sober. Right. If I'm struggling to stay sober on a daily basis, it means that I, I missed the boat. I did something wrong, or I didn't do something, or I didn't get through everything that I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And once you get placed in a position of, of sanity around it, um, you don't swear it away. You can, you can take it or leave it. You don't, you don't swear it off and have a, or have a cocky attitude where, you know, you're like, Oh, I got this. I'm, I'm never going to get drunk again. You simply have clarity around the fact that, that I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I remember uh, a story that I was working at a car wash when I was, um, three months sober and I was, uh, already through all the, the steps and work that I was supposed to get through. I was very involved doing my nightly inventories, um, uh, you know, praying and meditating, not, every day. Um, I'm not some like monk that, you know, is mm. perfect at all that stuff, uh, and, and helping people. And, um, I was cleaning out a car and two, two things occurred. And I, and I, so I found a pill bottle of, of Xanax, which is a benzodiazepine. I used to love taking those. Um, uh, I found a bottle of it and I had it in my hand because it was under the person's seat and I was staring at it. And I remember looking at it and smiling and, putting it back where I found it and laughing at myself because mm -hmm. I was like, I literally have zero desire to take any of those. Yeah. And that's when I realized how well this whole deal was working for me because I was a fiend for those things in the past. Right. And, and, um, there was another time where, um, this may not be around drugs, but it's, I used to steal from people and I found, uh, probably like a hundred to $200 and $20 bills in someone's like, like underneath someone's car seat. And I went from a thief and a person who stole from people to get what I wanted to within three months, not even thinking this isn't the right thing to do. If I steal this, all I did was I picked up the money. I walked inside and I handed it to the lady and I said, Hey, this was under your car seat. I don't know if you knew it was there or not, but mm -hmm. I want to make sure you have it because it looked like it was kind of like lost. And she looked at me and she just had this huge smile on her face. And when I walked away from her, I, I then also realized how well this program was working because I was like, wow, I'm not a thief anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not, stealing from people when it would have been the easiest scenario for me to steal in years. Right. And um, so I, si I got sidetracked a little bit to tell that story, but the whole purpose of this deal is, is to get well, not just to get sober and, and swear, swear the drugs and alcohol off. Right. And I had a, a if, if people don't feel comfortable around it, that's their, that's their choice. And I understand it, but I get more uncomfortable when people don't want to drink around me. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I'm putting myself in a position where people are snorting lines of Coke and popping pills and stuff, well. I'm probably not in the best place <laughs> to be in. Like, <laughs> like as a man who's, who's trying to live a new way of life. Right. Um, but like alcohol is everywhere. And when I went home, I was nine months sober and sobriety time means nothing. I can be just as sick nine years sober or nine months sober as I am two weeks sober. Mm -hmm. It is a fact. If I am not doing the daily disciplines that are, that are like laid at my feet to stay well, I am going to get sick again. And that is why 
like, I am not immune to this disease and I am not cured of this disease. I'm recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body because I continue to do the work. But if I lose my fit, like spiritual condition through the simple like tools that I use, I'm sure to drink again. Yeah. And I went home and I, and I looked at mom and dad and I said, I do not want you guys to, I think it was for either Christmas or Thanksgiving or something. I looked at them and I said, I do not want you guys to hide the alcohol and I do not want you guys to skip out on you drinking and enjoying your night because I'm not able to do it. So it would make me uncomfortable if you guys don't drink. And I would be very, very happy if you guys drank as if I didn't have a problem and you guys trust that I'm in a sane enough place to be okay. Right. And right in that very moment, they were like, that's incredible. Yep. Right. Cause it's not like you're moping in the corner. Like, well, I don't get to have that. Right. Cause you're, you're past that. Right. You've recovered from that. Um, is that correct? Is that fair to say? Yeah. So I, I think that my thought of it is like, if, if you're relying on other people to keep you sober, you're probably not going to stay sober anyways. Right. Right. Like, like my whole, my whole deal in my whole life, requires me to rely on a power that is much greater than myself in order for me to remain sober. And if I'm putting reliance upon my spouse or my mom or my dad or, or my friends to, to, to keep me happy and keep me well, I'm doomed. I'm, I'm going to fail right. every time. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think and I, my questions may sound uh, repetitive, but it's, it's a lot of questions that people have submitted in. So it's basically like, you're not sitting there in envy of everybody drinking, correct? In a room of no a party, right? No, yeah, no. I, I I look at people and I and I, if I'm sitting there in envy and I'm like I'm jealous that you can have a drink right now, yeah, I probably missed something, right? Because it's not a burden that I can't drink or use drugs. It's simply the cards that I've been dealt in life. And the solution that I've been given is, is far greater than the effect that's produced by alcohol and drugs. And some people may not believe that, but like the effect produced by what I do now um, for, for my recovery and what keeps me sober uh, is, is better than any drug or drink that I've ever taken. And I, and I say that with all seriousness. And I am a guy who loved heroin and yep. Coke and alcohol. I loved it. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's no it good, good for you. My hat is off to you. If you can drink like a normal person. Yeah. And, and shame on me if I look at you and feel jealous that you can drink and I can't. Yeah. No kidding. That's it's, it's crazy. And I love that you said that you shared that too. And you pretty much answered my next question, which was do addicts and alcoholics need to be careful with who they hang around, where they are, et cetera. And you pretty much answered that um, uh, a little earlier. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a good, yeah. It, one more comment I have about that part is like, if I'm putting myself in a position to go to bars every night of the week or every weekend to vicariously steal, like, like vicariously live through the people who are drinking and enjoying their times, like I'm probably not in the greatest place in my head. Yep. Um, if I'm going for a good enough reason and like if I'm going to a place where people are drinking like a family dinner for a holiday or a concert or a bar with friends who like I genuinely love to spend time with, there's no reason why I can't go do that. But if I'm trying to steal some type of pleasure uh, by living through them, I, I'm, I'm clearly not in a position of, of sanity around um, my truth. Yeah. Right. Yep. That makes sense for sure. So my next question is one that I want to start with a story on, and that involves um, you having, it actually starts with your very first um, kind of run in with pills, essentially, if you will, or your, what you claimed was um, your kind of 
what hooked you onto pills, I believe. And that was when you um, had your surgery and you were introduced to um, a certain type of pill. Um, you also had a yep. recent incident uh, that we can touch on um, that caused when you- When I got my teeth knocked out. Yes, you had your teeth knocked out playing hockey. Um, the, the official like pro status of becoming a real hockey player, <laughs> the front teeth were knocked my out. Two front teeth, gone. <laughs> And obviously with that, so you're in a very different state um, than, than where you were as a teenager being introduced to, to painkillers, et cetera. Um, and from, from what I heard from you, you were in a lot of pain um, and, and obviously have to deal with this pain um, being a recovered addict. So can you just talk a little bit about what it's like for you now, um, as far as going to a doctor where painkillers um, or some form of um, medicine is potentially required, what you have to disclose, and then, you know, how, like, what if you have something that bad that really requires um, a stronger medication? Like, just talk a little bit about, you know, your experiences now versus where, where you were before. <laughs> yeah, great question. That happens too. Like, I will probably get another surgery in my life where it involves a lot of pain. And I actually wondered that until this was the first time after eight, eight and a half years of, of being in recovery that I, I was faced with being in a situation where I was, I was going to potentially have to take some type of pain medicine. Um, me personally, before I go, um, into that doctor's office, they always make you fill out a form that says like, do you have a history of substance abuse? Which I think is incredible that society has gotten to a place to where that is, that is um, a requirement to fill out a form like that because, and if, if there isn't something like that in a form, I tell the doctor or whoever I'm speaking to like, yeah, I'm in recovery. I used to be a opiate addict. And it's good for them to hear that because if I don't tell them that, like, and I go get my teeth worked on like a root canal or I get my teeth knocked out like I did, <laughs> they're going to be very quick to write a script for Vicodin or Percocet or, or Oxycontin if it's a serious surgery. And like, they, they don't know, it's, they don't know that I'm in recovery and I have a problem with it. Right. And um, when I got my teeth knocked out, it's a funny story, flew to California to play a hockey tournament, landed, played two hockey games, got my two teeth knocked out took the red eye home on no sleep, landed, and then went straight into the, to the dentist for an emergency surgery. And it was the most painful experience I've ever walked through in my life because my roots were exposed. Oh. And when I, was, when I was done and I had my, my, um, my surgery where they had to put like two big screws in my gums, the doctor said, um, I want you to take four ibuprofen and one extra strength, extra strength Tylenol every five hours. And do not miss a single dose because if you do, it'll reset it and it's going to take a while for you to catch up. Ugh. My experience was that was enough for me yeah. um, for the most part. The other part of that story is they did give me a prescription of Vicodin, um, five milligram Vicodin pills. I think there were like 15 of them. I don't even know because I never held them. Yeah. Um, I had someone administering them to me if I woke up in agony and physically couldn't take it anymore, I would say like, I need to take one of these. Yeah. And, and I did, and I took a couple of them and I didn't abuse them. Uh, I never felt an effect produced by them because they worked the way they were supposed to. And I did not take enough to feel anything. Right. Um, if you're going to take them, obviously be honest with your doctor about it. Uh, and also, have somebody there to hold them for your own accountability because, you know, I may be in a sane place around this stuff, but if I get too carried away and have it in my system, like it's, it's easy for that physical allergy or that craving to kick in and I need to make sure that someone's regulating me. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems it obviously for people listening, that'll sound a bit um, risky, which it is, but I do think that taking the necessary steps and being aware, making your doctor aware, having somebody to help you um, is critical. And obviously that was um, the, the very far end of the spectrum of pain. I, I don't know how you, first of all, 
I can't even take a red eye in real life, just making it through the night. <laughs> I can't imagine being on a red eye with two front teeth knocked out, no pain, anything to help. Like I, you are, woof. I will real. never, ever forget it. The, oh. the altitude that it's, just, oh. it's not, it's not a good situation. So oh. the other thing is, is like, check your motives too, right? Like, if you get a surgery and, and you have availability to take a painkiller, um, are you taking it because you want to feel the effect produced or are you taking it because you're physically in so much pain that you need, that you need help, Right. you know, and that's why it's important to have somebody to help you stay accountable to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one more for you. Um, and this is coming out of a lot of excitement about this discussion and conversation. Uh, thank you again to everybody that is tuning in. Um, we said at the beginning, if we can help one person, we're good. And we have definitely started to help people. We are thrilled about it. Um, when it comes to somebody who is struggling right now or has a loved one who is struggling, we heard about the story with you and John where he finally reached out to you in his most hopeless state. Um, and you kind of walked him through a, a couple different things to get him kind of to a place where he was ready to get to recovery um, and to treatment. What, what can somebody expect if they were to reach out today? Um, they're listening. They feel um, they're, they're in that short window um, where they're ready um, to reach out. What can they expect from someone uh, like you or um, John or Bubba or Jason or this network of folks that have been through this? What can they expect um, out of what happens when they make that call uh, for help? And then what comes like just after that? So um, I think to settle some of the anxiety and fear of reaching out, um, just kind of like what, what should they expect from that phone call? The first thing they're going to they're gonna hear is our own personal experience with exactly what they're dealing with. And it's really important for us to do that. And that's what we are supposed to do in our position is relate and explain specific examples and, and parts of our stories that are so crazy that it can be laughed about and, and um, relate to whoever's dealing with those issues because like they feel lost when people are, are dealing with this battle. No one, they feel like no one understands them. They feel like they're doomed and they're never going to be able to get better. They feel like a disappointment. They feel shame, guilt, and, and all these things. And it's my job to secure their confidence by giving them specific examples and, and scenarios where I am the exact same person as them. Yep. And then like we talked about in Bubba's story a lot was the idea of getting physically removed from it. And the, the people that are really doing this deal and, and, and um, are helping people, they have resources and know how to get somebody to a place to where they can get physically detoxed. Yeah. And um, it's important to do that because without being physically removed from it, like, that effect that's being produced is going to continue to, to stay there. And, and the healing process can't really begin until you're no longer consuming the drugs or alcohol. And we aren't doctors and we don't try to be doctors. Uh, some people may try I, the group that I am involved with, like the people that I'm involved with, like we never try to be heroes and say, you know, no, don't worry about it. You can detox on your own and be fine. Like we're very quickly to say, you're, it sounds like you'll probably need a medical detox to get off of what you're using. Yeah. Um, so that way you don't have a seizure when you're going through it and, and you, you get through it um, with professionals who do this for a living. And then from that point, once they, they get physically removed from it, um, we dive right into uh, the steps that you need to take um, to, to get better and get well. And the way that, that, you know, we've talked about it in a couple of episodes, the way that we do it, we go through those steps very quickly yep. because the yep. longer you wait to go through those steps, the longer it's going to take for you to have a complete psychic change that revolutionizes your thinking and your way of viewing the world, which is the root of the problem to begin with. Right. 
and you've shown us the cycle of addiction in that short, short window of time um, where if they're reaching out, it's like, okay, we got to go. So that's the, that's the reason you always say for jumping in and, and getting to it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, listen, thanks for hanging in for a little longer to answer questions. Um, I think we're getting used to this. I think. <laughs> um, I like it. Yeah. Same here. Um, love you. Let's, uh, let's reconvene soon. And everybody, thank you again. Literally I'll continue saying that, um, for weeks to come. Thank you for tuning in. Um, and until next time, love you too. And love everybody. And, uh, see you later. All righty.